Isn't it wonderful to be back together again? So we're going to be diving back into the scriptures today. And like Greg said, I as a child more because I was an analyst and really liked cleanly specified things, hated hurricanes. So I promise not to do that to you today in my teaching. We're going to be back in the book of James this morning. And we've been studying James for a long time now. And who here thinks that James can sometimes be quite brutalizing? He's quite an intense character. In the moment where you're like, man, I've failed in every regard, James would just be utterly disappointed in me. You reach verse 7 and you realize he's even more disappointed in you. Isn't that exciting? (laughs) But James was a very unique character. He was a very unique person. And he had a somewhat aggressive personality. The scriptures will tell us that he was likely the, uh, James, the author of this work, was likely the younger biological brother of Jesus. And the scriptures will tell us that he actually thought Jesus was a fraud for quite a long time. He used to pick on Jesus. He mocked him saying, if you're the real deal, go to Jerusalem. And it wasn't until after the death in resurrection of Jesus, that James began to realize, oh my gosh, my older brother is God and human person. But even that didn't fully change his personality. The scriptures will say that at the Council of Jerusalem, he duked it out with both Peter and, well, not with Peter, he was aligned with Peter and he duked it out with Paul, overthrowing uncircumcised Gentiles out of the church. So James was a harsh guy. But what I want to invite us into this morning is a new vision of James. You see, if we think about this younger, harsher James and we compare it to the James who tells us there's to be no favoritism among you, you're to show mercy to all, it almost sounds like a bad case of multi-personality disorder, but I promise you it's not. James began to see the heart of God. So when he teaches us, he's not giving us a long list of do's and don'ts. He's saying, this is the heart of God towards you. Let it transform you and begin to inform your love towards others. Does that make sense? So this morning, we're going to be diving into the scriptures, and I want you to think of this passage as being in two parts. The first is the unveiling of the heart of God. The second is... How are we as Christians supposed to respond to that unveiling? So if you would with me, please stand for the reading of the scriptures. We'll be in James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17, and we'll carry right on through James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. It says, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a town and spend a year there doing business and making money. Yet you do not even know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for just a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wishes, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. This sentence is important for us this morning. Anyone then who knows the right thing to do, yet fails to do it, commits sin. Now enter part two. Come now, you rich people. Weep and wail for the miseries that are coming to you. Your riches have rotted and your clothes are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have rusted and their rust will even be evidence against you. And it will eat your flesh like fire. 
There's the intense James again. You have laid up treasure for the last days. Listen, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived your life on earth in luxury and pleasure. You have fattened your hearts on a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous one who does not resist you. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we gather here this morning to worship you and learn from you, we're reminded of just how human we are, just how in control you are, that without a notice we can literally miss church for two weeks. That should be a lesson to all of us, that we live by your provision and your care. So as we study your word this morning, I'd ask that you not just download cool ideas and concepts to us, but you would begin to unveil who you are. And how that transformational love would begin to inform us and how we live towards our world. We love you, we honor you, and all the church said, Amen. Please be seated. Last week, Pastor Greg spoke on the necessity of drawing both our direction and the satisfaction of our desires from the Lord. I'm sure many of you joined us online for that teaching And something that stuck out in that teaching uniquely to me was he talked about fear. I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes when I go to the Lord in prayer and I desire something, I want something, I have an idea of what I want to do, I go to the Lord in fear. Why? We know the scriptures. We know that God works out all things according to his perfect promises, We know that he transforms all things to good, and we know that he loves us more than we could ever imagine. So why are we so afraid to approach him sometimes? Am I the only one? Maybe I'm the only unholy person here who who feels that way. And something that strikes me about this fear is the reason I am so often afraid to go to God is this. I have wants and I have desires and I'm afraid that if I ask God, he won't give me what I want and I'll be left alone, I'll be left empty, I'll be left wanting in the way I started and I'm afraid of choosing to listen to him. This isn't a unique story. This isn't something that just happens in our own lives and as we study the scriptures this morning, I want us to begin to reverse the clock to a long time ago, to when God created the world, to a place where want, to a place where emptiness, to a place where brokenness and death didn't exist and God formed a good creation. In fact, it wasn't just good and it wasn't just majestic, but at the very end, he crowns this creation with something unique, and that's his very own image. That's us. That's humanity. We were placed on earth to be symbols of the presence of God bringing heaven and earth together. And there was no disease, there was no unmet desire, there was nothing bad, there was no brokenness, and yet The scriptures will tell us that much like our own decisions to follow our own wants and desires, that is what brings death into the equation at the very beginning. Most of us know the story. Adam and Eve living a perfect existence, having 
perfect purpose, mutually depending upon each other and on God, and yet they give up all those things in order to pursue their own desire. They eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and we all know what happens. Death enters the equation. Privation, emptiness. And something that strikes me as so unique in this moment and is so well stated by a very good friend of mine by the name of Mike Hester, he'll say, all of human sin is this statement. Hey God, I've got this, I don't need you. And it begins to strike me that in this passage, in this moment where God creates humanity in his very own image, humanity steps out of that image, says, I want to be who I choose to be. And what happens? Without God, there's no longer anything to reflect. If our whole design was to reflect the identity, purposes, and love of God in the world, without God, there's nothing left of us. And that leads me to a very important question this morning, which is this. If all life is authored, animated, and spoken by the word and will of God, I want us to ask ourselves a question and ask it honestly. What exactly is a life lived outside of relationship and obedience to God? Maybe more succinctly I could ask, what is true life? Because frankly, our culture is obsessed with it. All you have to do is log online to either social media or go downtown into the middle of Fort Collins and see all the wholeness shops and the yoga studios. People, both believers and non-believers, are desperate for true life. That's why the word authenticity has almost become annoying. Self-improvement, self-direction, self-care, these are all attempts to find God's true life somewhere. So where do we discover this true life? Where is it? James provides for us a clue this morning. He writes, anyone then who knows the right thing yet fails to do it commits sin. This may seem like a simple statement on the surface, but I want to dive into the Greek a little bit more. And just like I do with the youth group, I'm going to make you guys say Greek words. Are you excited for that? (laughs) So if we look at this phrase, knows the right thing, and we dissect this word know in the Greek, it's this word edo. Can you say edo with me? And it's not just a pure knowing. It means to see something and come to an understanding through your seeing. It means that if you don't see and you don't hear, you don't actually access this truth. You have to perceive it. During his earthly ministry, Jesus would make a statement of himself. The son can do nothing on his own, but only what he sees the father doing. Whatever the father does, the son does likewise. I want to invite us to explore a little bit of good biblical Trinitarian theology this morning. And I want us to remember the fact that this Jesus, the son who says, I can do nothing on my own, is God in human person. He was there at the beginning. This triune God is what humanity, this is the image humanity is crafted into. And yet this God in human form and human nature says, without the father person of the Trinity, I can do nothing. If God says of God, I can do nothing by myself, who are we as image bearers to imagine that we can? 
And it's striking to me in this moment that when we think about the Son's eternal dependence on the Father and we see the way it's exampled throughout the Gospels, Jesus will literally pass miraculously through people's hands and arms so that he can go be alone with the Father. Do you see the desperation there? Do you see the absolute necessity of that relationship? It causes me to ask myself, do I... Am I willing to go to the length of miracles to spend time alone with God to hear his voice? And so if God says of God, I cannot live without you, I want us to ask, how can we believe that without the divine will guiding, directing, and walking alongside us, how can we believe that what we're actually doing is life? Because what the Genesis narrative will tell us is that we are actually participating in death these moments. James uses the image of vapor and mist. What we do leads to nothing. Because have any of you ever seen a bathroom mirror before that doesn't have a person standing in front of it? What do you see in that mirror? Do you see a reflection of an image of a person? Or is it just an empty room? What do you think we are when we are not reflecting God? We're an empty mirror. You see, James will continually warn us against the temptation of living in this earthly wisdom, this belief of I've got this on my own. I can pursue my own life. I have my own desires and wants, and I know how to get them. He calls this being double-minded. In the Greek, it's dysikos. Can you say that with me? Dysikos. And it means to live with two minds in tension. Have any of you ever seen someone who is medically and psychologically mentally ill and at one moment they're kind, they're happy, they're caring, they're nice and at the split second they're hostile, angry, mean, aggressive and they might even do harm to you and the people around you. You see, just like we, just like we see in our own world, people who are medically and psychologically schizophrenic, James is warning us, Without the voice of God leading you day by day, you can become spiritually schizophrenic. And where's the danger here? Maybe, maybe you're like me and it's like, I don't see it yet. Like, why are my desires bad? Why is my own life such a bad thing? You see, if we dive into part two, which reads, Come now, you rich people. Weep and wail for the miseries that are coming to you. Your riches have rotted and your clothes are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have rusted and their rust will even be evidence against you. It will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure for the last days. Listen, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out against you. James uses words like moth-eaten, rusted, Does that sound like life? Does it sound like we're building life for ourselves when we live from that posture of earthly wisdom? Or is God telling us, in those moments you might believe you're pursuing something good, but you're actually pursuing death, and that is not what I desire for you. You see, as human beings, it is so easy to give way to the illusion that we can have a life outside the direction and will of God. 
We believe that a good life full of good intentions, good actions, good ideas, good ambitions, and good behaviors is enough. And that as long as we don't sin too much and we don't rock the boat, we will have a good and righteous life. James is saying that is impossible. When you live there, you don't just architect death for yourself. You create an environment of death for everyone around you. The wages of the laborers which you kept back by fraud are screaming out against you. So how do we escape this? How do we begin to embrace the life of God rather than the death of our own lives? Because if one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, how do we begin to live out those words? You see, James may seem harsh, unpleasant, inhumane, and I'm not really convinced he's someone I'd want to go get coffee with sometimes. But I experienced this very reality in my own life this week. I was just coming out of a time of prayer. Imagine sinning right after a time of prayer. I was just coming out of a time of prayer and I was feeling injured by a person I loved. And I don't think they knew they had done anything to hurt me. And I thought through this phrase in my head and I instantly heard the Holy Spirit say, don't you dare say that. Don't say it. Don't you dare say that. And what do you think I did? Oh, I was saintly and I picked up my cross and (laughs) no, I let that statement fly. And for two days this week, I watched a person live in emotional and spiritual death because I hit a wound inside them I didn't even know was there. It took them days to get over it. I created death for someone I loved because I wasn't listening to the voice of God. I was listening to my own desires. We'd be missing the forest for the trees if we didn't talk about the direct object of James' teaching, which is the hoarding of financial resources and of money. And as Americans, if you're anything like me, I instantly feel myself getting a little bit uncomfortable, tugging on my collar a little bit. But I want us to see something important here. It says, the treasure you have laid up for the last days... Listen, the wages of those laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out against you. The treasure you have laid up for the last days. Why do we lay up treasure in our lives? Because we want security. Because we want to feel loved. Because we want to succeed. Because we want to have a purpose. Because we do not want to be vulnerable. That's why we hoard. And James is saying, when you begin to find your identity there, you will create death for the people around you. You see, James makes a very important distinction here. He says to be rich in this self-defining way is to define yourself by what you have and what you can amass for yourself, whereas to be blessed is to see the very character of the God who blesses you. Later on, he'll stress the need to be patient, to be endurant, to be compassionate, generous, and merciful. And what is patience? Patience is the willingness to go listen to the voice of God and be willing to follow it even when it's hard. What is generosity? If we go back to this picture of the triune God, 
The father who says of the son in the gospel of Mark, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. The son in the gospel of John who says of the father, I can do nothing of my own accord but only what he says and only what he does. If we think about the spirit who comes out upon the earth and begins to reveal the father and son to us, and in this statement that always blows my mind, the son, Jesus of Nazareth, telling the disciples, it would be better for me to leave and ascend back to heaven in order that the helper, the Holy Spirit, might come upon you. That the Holy Spirit is so incredible, it's better for you to see them than it is to see me right now. Do we live with that kind of generosity towards people? Do we live with that kind of mercy? Do we live with that kind of other revering compassion that we see exampled in God? Or do we live according to ourself, our own desires, our own wants, and our own ambition? You might ask, that sounds incredible. It sounds amazing to participate in the internal life of God and not the dying world we're in now, but how do I do that? How do I find God in that particular way? How do I begin to live his true life? Wasn't that accomplished by the cross? The cross is what gave birth to you in this new life. But this is the life that God has invited to you as his image bearer. So how do I evaluate myself? I ask myself in the direct context of James' teaching, am I generous with money? Do I see money as something that builds myself up, builds my identity, builds my security? Or do I begin to use the resources God has given me to build up the lives of others in that very way we see God live inside of the Trinity? That this one God and three persons is always revering the other. Are we revering the other with our money? Do we have the endurance to listen to what God says even when we don't want to do it? Do we have the mercy to give financial provision or emotional provision or relational provision to others? Or are we too focused on our own needs and their own insufficiencies to give it? Because if that's the way God behaved towards us, which isn't what the scripture said, as Greg reminded us this morning, God built a plan of redemption before we even sinned. Are we building that same level of forgiveness for others? that we might forgive them even before they sin. You see, James isn't inviting us to a prosperity gospel or a poverty gospel. In fact, the later passages of chapter five would forbid that interpretation. He talks about the need to be faithful with wealth. He talks about the need to be faithful in poverty, to be faithful in happiness and to be faithful in suffering and disease. Instead, James is drawing our attention to the very earthly way in which we focus on the gifts of God and what they can create for us instead of focusing on the giver. And perhaps that's God's way of inviting us to a deeper knowledge of him. Maybe he's inviting us to explore the hard truth within ourselves that maybe we don't fully trust God yet. Maybe we think, if I can amass more money, if I can amass more security, if I can amass more ambition for myself, I'll be safe. And instead, God is saying, no, no, no. I created you to be in my image, to be my glory, and to participate in my eternal life 
all this death will not do. You were destined for something so much greater. And as I think about my own fear, as I think about my own unwillingness to obey God in those hard moments, it reminds me of a story my friend shared with me this past week. And she told me about before she was even born, her mother was desperate for a child. And after five miscarriages, the fifth of which ended up resulting in an eight-month stillbirth, she was utterly brokenhearted. And she went to the hospital to visit her sister who had recently had a baby of her own. And friends and family were bringing in flowers. It was like an endless flow of flowers. And as she saw all these flowers being brought for her sister, she started praying, God, please let my husband have flowers for me when I get home. I need flowers. I need flowers to be on the kitchen table. Oh God, could you please let there be flowers for me when I get home? I have this desire and I don't think anyone sees it. And as she went home, she realized that much like all of us husbands, as much as we try to love, we're not psychics and a lot of us aren't prophets either. There are no flowers on the table. And she went to the backyard to cry, to cry over the loss, to cry over the fact she felt like she was alone in this unfruitful place of desire. And she looked out at the backyard, this unfinished backyard of the huge house her and her husband had purchased to have their kids run about. And she looked at the garden, which was this unfinished mound of dirt. And not only were there stems with buds growing everywhere, but in fact, they were starting to bloom. So even when nowhere on earth was bringing her flowers, God saw her need and gave her the flowers she desired. And my friend told me one year from that day, was the day I was born. Are we ready to step into that radical trust? That trusting generosity, that trusting kindness and mercy, that we might be the image of God which brings redemption to our world rather than more death. The writings of Peter will say, God has given to you all things necessary to be participants in his divine nature. God desires for us something eternal. Maybe instead of focusing on the gifts for our identity, we might take 15 minutes a day in prayer to start focusing on the giver, that we might learn his heart, his compassion, and his kindness towards the world around us. 